0: with us tonight Zocalo Public Square and we're so pleased for tonight's conversation which will feature amongst other things um, two artists who will soon be appearing on the stage of the Soraya just on the other side of that wall. So those of you who are here for the first time or those of you who are here from home I hope you'll join us for a performance soon. Um, In Los Angeles right now you'll know that um, there are health, public health measures that vary venue to venue, but we really thank you for following our CSUN protocols, which is to keep your masks on until such time as you're actively eating or drinking, which we will do afterward. Uh, Afterward, you're all invited to join us on Loge level uh, to meet tonight's panelists. So thank you for joining us here and joining us again afterward. I'm so pleased to welcome to the stage Sarah Suarez, Programming Manager from Zocalo Public Square.
1: Thank you Thor, good evening and welcome everyone. Thank you to our audience online and to everyone here with us tonight at the Soraya. Sokolo Public Square and the Soraya recognize and acknowledge the Sesevitam, the first people of this ancestral and unceded territory of Sesevenga that is now occupied by this institution. And we honor their elders, past and present, and the Sesevitam descendants who are citizens of the Fernandeno Tataviam Band of Mission Indians. We recognize that the, the, the Sasevatam are still here, and we are committed to lifting up their stories, culture, and community. I'm Sarah Suarez, and I'm the programming and operations manager of Sokolo Public Square, an Arizona State University media enterprise. At Socolo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free, and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing, and we present conversations like this one. You can find us at ZócaloPublicSquare.org on all the major podcast platforms and YouTube, so please subscribe for all our latest events. We are honored to partner with the Soraya for tonight's event to ask, how do homelands cross borders? Our moderator is Gustavo Arellano, a writer, columnist for the LA Times, and host of the podcast, The Times. He's the author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America, Ask a Mexican, and Orange County, A Personal History. Thank you, and over to you, Gustavo.
2: (laughs) Okay, what a beautiful venue, right? My first time here, it's absolutely gorgeous. All right, thank you all, thank you. Good evening, my name is Gustavo Riano. I'm a columnist for Los Angeles Times, and thank you Socalo Public Square for having me moderate another uh, discussion here, second time this year, so that's really, really cool. I'm gonna pull up this nice little intro that I have to read, the official stuff, here it goes. Thank you, hello everyone, welcome, and thank you for joining us here tonight. I am delighted to be speaking with our fantastic guests. So we're gonna go this way, that way. So. So, oh, I forgot to bring my um, my farsighted glasses, so I have to be a little bit like this. It happens, so if I'm like this, that's what's happening. Aparna Ramaswamy is a co-artistic director, choreographer, and principal dancer of Ragamala Dance Company with her mother, Rani Ramaswamy, who I'm also going to intro in a bit, who's also on our panel tonight. Their work has been commissioned and presented widely by venues including the Kennedy Center, Lincoln Center, Joyce Theater, and American Dance Festival. The Soraya... You know, coming up, and, and where was it? And they are each recipients of Guggenheim Fellowships, Doris Duke Performing Art, Art Performing Artist Awards, Bogliasco Foundation Fellowships, and many other honors. So, round of applause for Aparna. Thank you. Rani Ramaswamy founded Ragamala Dance Company in 1992 and is its co-artistic director, choreographer, and principal dancer. Rani has been a choreo- choreographer, performer, and teacher of Bharatanata- sorry, actually, Bharatanata- Bharatanatyam, 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 the classical dance of South India since 1978, and she currently serves on the National Council on the Arts appointed by President Barack Obama. Round of applause. Shushan Karapetian is a deputy director of the USC Institute of Armenian Studies, where she leads the Institute's research and scholarship initiatives. She also serves as an associate director of the National Heritage Language Resource Center at UCLA, Go Bruins. Her work studies the Armenian experience. She's also from UCLA originally, too, so it's okay if I say that. Her work studies the Armenian experience and the intersections of language and transnational identity. So, round of applause for Shushan. And finally, but not leastly, Brian Tawara is a poet and president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Poetry Association, and he is the Lao Minnesotan Poet Laureate. He holds over 20 awards for his writing and community leadership, including an NEA Fellowship in Literature. He works actively to support Southeast Asian artists and he, represents, he represented the nation of Laos as a cultural Olympian during the London 20, 2012 Summer Games. He is the author of six books of poetry, most recently, Before We Remember, We Dream. And he's going to hold it up right now and I'm going to hold it up in a bit. So a round of applause. And thank again, thank you all panelists for being here. And before we start, I'd like to remind our audience at home and also here that we're going to be taking questions throughout the panel. If you have questions, uh, you can text your questions through the number on your wristband or stories because I'm going to do a little exercise a little bit. And if you're joining us online, post your questions in the live chat on YouTube. They will be transmitted to me to this Google Doc and we'll be able to talk. But right now, I'm not going to use a phone. So I want to start actually with all of you with... And also, I'm going to include myself, and I want all of you also to think of this with this exercise, if you will. So we're talking about what, you know, how do you take home across borders? We're kind of talking about diaspora. And all of us, one way or another, we belong to a community, a community that that has the home where you live in right now and a home that maybe is somewhere else. And some, like, you know, the indigenous folks of this land, they never had to leave this home. Other people, they have. So I want all of you, and I'm gonna start first, to start as, you know, starting with the hyphen that the United States has always put on us, the hyphen. Start with the first part of your hyphen, or you know, what is your hyphenated identity, then try to go from macro to as micro as possible. So, you know, I'll give you my example. So I'm Mexican-American. From that specific Mexican-American identity, my diaspora are people from the state of Zacatecas, which is a state in central Mexico. There's hundreds of thousands of us here in Southern California alone, a lot of us here in the valley. Even more specifically, I come from the diaspora of a, in, it's called the municipio in Mexico, it's a, like a city, city county, but I come from the municipio of Jerez. There's tens of thousands of us here in Southern California, thousands of us in the valley alone, and even more specifically, my diaspora is connected to a small village called El Cargadero. It's about maybe 300 people left in Mexico, but in Anaheim alone, there's over 1,000 of us. So that's my sort of my diasporic history from macro to micro. So, Parna, take it away.
3: Okay. I'll try. <laughs> so I think mine is not so easily described from... Uh, micro to macro, but I may meander a little.
2: So what, whatever I, goes with you.
3: Okay, so my, uh, if I had to identify as a hyphenate, I would say I am South Indian American. I, uh, my family moved to the United States in 1978. At that time we moved to Minnesota. There were 50 Indian families, maybe a hundred Indian families. One hundred, sorry. Now there are 100,000 Indians. Now when I say Indians, I'm talking from all states. So uh, our family is from the state of Tamil Nadu. Many generations ago, that family, uh, we migrated to Kerala, India on the southwestern coast. Tamil Nadu is on the southeastern coast. And so um, there are many different, we could go deeper and deeper to different communities, castes, But um, I'm going to stop there because I don't have the numbers like you do.
4: (laughs) I think Aparna answered all these questions because we came together and had the same experiences. And I would say that for me, a long time ago, starting in 1978, 1979, I used to do a lot of teaching in schools all over Minnesota, teaching about how specific each state in in India is, how every festival, every food, everything is different. But now, 43 years, I think I'm bad at math. For 19, whatever, 40, 40 plus years. That's changing. And now I say that if they ask me to do a residency or teach about my culture, I won't be able to do it because the division has gone. Mm. And every there is a mixing and mingling of cultures in India as it is here, so it, that specificness of where are you from I 'm a South Indian Ayir Brahmin that itself has kind of gotten mingled in
5: and I think that's good.:
2: yeah, totally shoot
5: okay, so i 'm armenian American. I was born in Armenia in the capital city, Yerevan um, we came in the early 90s when there was a huge exodus, about a million people left Armenia, post-earthquake, post-war, post-Soviet collapse, the economy collapsed, uh, energy collapsed. Um, I came here, walked into my fifth grade class with, I don't know, a very broken English. I remember practicing, hello, my name is Shushan and my very American-looking teacher greeted me in Armenian because mm-hmm. there had been so many kids coming that she had learned a few phrases. Wow. And the few words I knew, of course, escaped my mind. Um, so the transition was very interesting. It was very soft. We, The entire apartment complex we were living in were full of Armenians just like me who had just come from Armenia. But we were by no means the first Armenians in LA. There were Armenians in LA In the early 20th century, there was another wave post-World War II of displaced persons. Uh, There was the Middle Eastern Armenians who had come. So we were like the fourth wave that has continued. So that's part, but if I were to go macro, back to macro, my parents were born in Armenia, my grandparents in Yerevan, my grandparents were born in villages um, my mother's side, my grandfather was born in Georgia. Mm. His parents were for Evzrum from western Armenia. on both sides my great grandparents were genocide survivors who ended up in modern day Armenia so kind of homeland is an interesting concept. Yes, Armenia is my home, but then there's this original home that is eastern armenia a western Armenia that 's now in anatolia, eastern Turkey so
2: Thank yeah. you, and then finally, Brian. Well, I suppose
0: you know, like they say on social media, it's complicated. <laughs> I tend to identify primarily as Lao American. Then um, I was born in 1973 in the um, in the final closing days of the you know, of the Second Indochina War, during which you know, the United States had been engaged in a secret you know, war. You know, let's see with a proxy army raised by the Central Intelligence Agency then. I happened to be born in you know, the capital city of Vinchang Ben, you know, and I had been you know, adopted by an American pilot who was flying in the region at the time as a civilian, which could mean a lot of things during that particular time, the way that um, US government policies work with covert operations. But in any case, so I, it's like I was part of that first wave of um, refugees and immigrants who came to the United States in 1973. And um, now, in the United States, close to 500,000 of us have resettled and rebuilt our lives here, including in Minnesota, which has the third largest population of Lao refugees um, to the state, which is of course a bit of an interesting contradiction almost because Minnesota is also the state that produced the cluster bombs but continue to contaminate over 30% of Laos over 50 years since the end of the secret bombing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's all sorts of things there. I suppose as we keep going back into my particular diasporic experience, then I'm one of the few in our community who was able to attend college, who, um, you know, I didn't even get a chance to start looking for my long-lost family until I had turned 18, and I finally found them back in 2003 when I was 30 years old. And so that's been this process of discovering that and having to go back to Laos to search for them. Oh, no, didn't you... No? It's like, yeah, your parents already left for the United States. They're living in, in um, Modesto, I think, is the city. Oh, <laughs> you should go visit her. Yeah, 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 that was kind of a plan.
2: That's and funny. So,
0: and so, you know, it's both complications that make us, I think.
2: All of you, and I'll include myself, a lot of your work, a lot of your professional identity has landed on this idea of, quote-unquote, home, of presenting whatever your a homeland of yours was, is, and becoming, why? Like, you know, we could, all, we could have all been doctors or lawyers or something, like nothing involving ethnic stuff, but yet you all stick to something that is near and dear to you, the idea of home. So why do you stick with that? So, again, just going around the table.
3: Sure. Um, sometimes it would make sense for Ronnie to go first because... because you, okay, okay. Okay.
2: okay.
3: Um, <laughs> So, so for, for us, I mean, I mean obviously, obviously as, 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 um, as a child of immigrants and, and Indian, you know, South Asian immigrants, there always is a pressure to to uh, become a lawyer or a doctor, or, you know, one of the, the traditional routes. But my mother uh, was had started dancing, and she had a, a very kind of challenging and circuitous path to follow that. But uh, I started working with her, and in the work that we did together, we found a teacher who is very, very well known in South India. She is known as the master of this form. And we were just totally mesmerized by her command of the form, her truth, her poetry, her honesty, everything that she could bring to to the stage. And there was an incredible, there is an incredible pride in the art forms that come from our homeland. And there feels this deep, um, commitment intention responsibility to maintain the the lineage the dance lineage that we are a part of
4: is it a pride
2: of just what an amazing culture it is or is there like a lot of times when you do have like uh expressions of culture there's certain nostalgia to it do you see any nostalgia to it as well
3: uh i don't think so because I think that there is such a keen critical eye on each of the art forms that we bring together in our work. And so for us, what I would say, and I know I'm speaking for both of us, but we talk about this all the time. Um, I would say that there is so much pride in many of the ancient traditions, the literary traditions, and the uh, visual art traditions. But in terms of the actual dance traditions from which we come, it is the specificity of the lineage that we belong to. And it is the absolute um, contemporary sense and uh, uh, possibility to mine the human condition Mm -hmm. through this ancient form that is being reimagined by each practitioner and the way that we have been trained to do that and the way that we have been able to use that and feel compelled to use that in conversation with
4: our lives here in our artistic work is what drives us. Ronnie. For me I would have not danced professionally if I hadn't immigrated to the United States because I come from a family of Brahmin, educated men, not just housewife women, where the only plan that my parents had for me was to get married and be a housewife. And so I studied dance just to uh, have a qualification, an added qualification to be a bride. And I loved dance all my life, but I had to stop it at 16, then you know, finish my college, get married, and I came here. And in Minnesota, the 100 people that Aparna mentioned said, you have studied dance, why don't you teach our children? And I didn't know enough because I hadn't danced for 10 years. And um, I, uh, one of the Indian families gave me two pieces of music to which I took that opportunity and danced at the, um, for a Diwali function and felt the love that I had. And people who saw me really liked it. And that was the beginning of my career. It became a passion, yeah. and I went with it from, you know, I say, um, from nothing to where I am is all because of what opportunities I got here in the United States. How
2: was it in those days in Minnesota where... Uh, in the specificity, a 100 Indians in the entire state. And it reminds me, I once did an oral history of Mexican restaurants in Kentucky, and I interviewed one of the pioneers. This is a woman who, who had be, who had been moved with her husband in the mid-1980s, and she says, I remember when you could fit all the Mexicans in Kentucky in a church, like, basement. Like, there was just, like, 50 of us. So how was it in those days, so small a community, and to see it to where it is just in, just in, in, in rather, in Minnesota alone, 100,000?
4: Yeah, it happened... We did. I did, and when Aparna grew up, we did. You know, she joined me. She has been dancing with me since she was eight years old. That is, it's not every day that we performed in venues like the Soraya. The education that we did, educating audiences, presenters, funders, um, danced on. You know, swept the park and danced on a park stage. It. We danced everywhere and made it possible for people to see it, created work that collaborated with many other artists so that those who would come to see them would come to see us. So it has. It wasn't easy, but I can tell you that Minnesotans were very open-armed because there wasn't anyone else who was doing what I did. It's different in the East Coast, West Coast, because there are already, even before me, there were Indians. Longer before. traditions, yes. yeah. So anyway... Um, it, it's work that we did and how they accepted us that led to what who we are today.
3: But I think we can, as you're talking about this oral history project, I mean, we can remember, we remember knowing every Indian in the community. We would all get together for the same things and, you know, we would dance and they would know. And, and every step of the way, that expansion within the community and then outside of the community and... And the community grows, but also our work grows. All of that, uh, we remember every step of the way. And so the number shift may be great, but it feels very, that, that mem- those memories are very tangible.
2: Yeah, I mean, you literally saw it grow in your lifetime, in your entire life. We yeah. were
3: there with it every step of the way.
2: That's just incredible. Uh, Shushan, you are culture, you're a language. Why do you do what you do?
5: I wish I could say this. It was very premeditated, and I had this dream of becoming this Armenian studies expert, but no. Um, I think if I had remained in Armenia, I definitely wouldn't have become a professional Armenian. <laughs> I think. <laughs> are we are <all> professional <laughs> ethnic. Yeah. I think the diasporic condition kind of pushes your ethnic identity to the surface. You know, in Armenia, I was just a normal human being. Um, my story was my biggest rebellion was not to become a doctor. Mm. Obviously, all the pressure from the family and the narrative I grew up with was I had two professional parents, highly educated, who had left their life, moved here, and the constant message at home was, for your education, for your opportunities. And of course, as any immigrant family, the top achievement was a medical doctor. And my biggest rebellion was not to become a medical doctor, but then I felt so bad for my parents that I said, I'll get the doctor title. It just won't be an MD. It'll <laughs> be a PhD. Um, so what I did was I started my undergraduate years at UCLA as an undeclared major, which was very confusing for my parents. What do you mean undeclared? You don't know. You're just going to explore. And then I discovered anthropology. I took a cultural anthropology class and everything made sense because I was bicultural, because I was bilingual. This notion that you can see the world from multiple perspectives was already built in. So my idea was I would do a PhD in anthropology having nothing to do with Armenian studies, just go disappear, you know, study others, study the world, the human condition. It just so happened that my Armenian proficiency was really strong. And my advanced Eastern Armenian professor recommended me to teach an Eastern Armenian class at Glendale Community College called Basic Conversation in Armenian, which was, of course, entirely attended by heritage or native speakers who didn't need basic conversation, and the three non-Armenians who were dating, married, engaged, wanted to marry an Armenian. And I got a half-sheet of instructions, no curriculum, no materials, no guidelines. I had some heritage students. I didn't know what a heritage student was. They didn't know what a heritage student was. So I ended up coincidentally finding this heritage language teacher workshop at UCLA where I signed up to just kind of develop my skills as an instructor, and it just took from there. I initially was going to study 17th century dramatic pieces written in classical Armenian in Venice for these Catholic monks, who were, you know, producing the next generation of intellectuals, that didn't happen. I shifted gears to studying Armenian as a heritage language and kind of, besides the practical, pragmatic, how do you teach someone their own mother tongue? That they have have the matrix, but they have major gaps, and then there comes, you know, attitudinal issues and so on and so on. But honestly, the more I've thought about it, the more I've come to realize, I think we all do what we do to understand ourselves better. So yes, a lot of it is coincidence, a lot of it is happenstance, a lot of it is meeting the right people at the right time, rebelling at the right time, trying to piss off your parents, (laughs) Um, or, you know, trying to please them, maybe, in, in a strange way, but... And it's interesting you say pissing off
2: parents because usually in the, the quote-unquote traditional immigrant narrative, the parents want you to keep, you know, the parents want you to be a doctor or whatever, and you instead went in. And it's like, okay, you want me to quote-unquote not be as Armenian by quote-unquote becoming a professional? Mm-hmm. No, I'm going to be the most Armenian yep. Armenian of them all. And now, of course, I'm assuming your parents are proud of you.
5: They're very, they're <laughs> very proud, and the funny thing is, I remembered their friends coming over. My parents struggling to explain anthropology, first of all. Um, second of all, explaining that I'm an Armenian doing Armenian studies, and then their friends going, "Where's the money? How's she gonna support herself?" Right? But then there is this, you know, I think once they wrap their minds around, obviously, academia makes sense. Linguistics makes sense. All of that makes sense. So now they're extremely proud. Um, it all worked out And well. I would also say
2: for all of you, you know, there's always that question of money. But once folks in your community see what you do, there's a pride to that. There's a pride from the community in saying, like, thank you for representing us well. Congratulations on making a career out of it, you know go off and do more and, like, hopefully inspire even more people to create that. So, uh, you know, Brian, as a writer, what do you see, the, you know, as a writer, I think you especially are interesting because in this sense that, yes, you could do an entire career just writing about Laotian identity and all of that, but you also do other stuff that is not about, you know, that. So how much of your, uh, you know, Laotian identity do you think is important for you as a writer?
0: Well, oh, wow, that's a really great and complicated question, I suppose. I mean, one of the um, challenges, at least for the Lao diaspora, you know, then, is that's a little bit different from many of the others, is that you have to appreciate that in 50 years, there have been fewer than 50 books you know, written by other Lao writers in our own words, on our own terms, particularly in the United States. Then. You know, when I was doing my original search back for my roots and my heritage, you know, a Native American... Um, art student had um, kind of somehow gotten it into my head when I started college, like, well gee Brian, as an adoptee, um, you know you're basically straddling two boats here, one is your white life and one is your Asian heritage and um, that's going to be a very tough river for you to kind of um, travel down throughout your life but um, you may choose one you may try to choose both but um, don't you owe it to yourself to at least explore what um, you would be giving up if you gave that up and I said oh you're absolutely right and then it's like okay, well, that's fine, and for the longest time, the only thing I had to work off of was an issue of National Geographic magazine from the nineteen from about nineteen eighty two as I recall and it you know and it's kind of like well that's not a whole lot um you know, to work with, but then that was the question you know, the more and more as I started get connecting back with other members of the community reaching out seeking you know, them then it's like you know it's kind of like well, don't you think that um, you know like what are we supposed to have because during the French colonization of our country then, um, the stories we were being told about who we were was also being manipulated by the colonial forces. There's an old um, parable that goes, the Vietnamese plant the rice, the Cambodians um, watch the rice grow, the Lao people listen to the rice grow. And it's kind of like, what is that? Who we? You know, it's like, hello. It's like, do you know how much rice we're actually making in our own homeland? Okay, well, whatever if that's who you want it. Um, tell the world, you know, and so it was this whole process then of, you know, trying to figure out, well, what are we going to do? We don't have this huge literary tradition then, especially one translated
2: for those of us in the diaspora. And what has then helping to create a loud literary tradition Mm -hmm. done for the community, especially for the generation that followed you?
0: Well, that was the um, interesting challenge, is is that you know, Admittedly, as a poet, my training was actually—you know—to usually we're supposed to respond to this baseline of poetry or literature that exists, like you know, like oh yeah, you know, here's the great classic writer, um, then, and you know, you either a part of that tradition or you're going to be really radical in that tradition. It's like, oh well, no, we don't have a tradition at all, and so this is the thing that I found myself in saying, like, as I did more exploration, was okay. I anticipated at some point there was always going to be someone else who was going to come along and kind of tell the, the you know the traditional immigrant stories we always saw in American media, like you know came here with nothing, built themselves up, here pulled them up by the bootstraps, and so on. Then and then I said, okay, well that's going to be written. Then what's the stuff that's not as intuitive that's going to be created? And then I realized as we looked around, um, science fiction became a major issue then. Because, you know, there was such a culture of non-expectation, and then it was like, oh, wait, no, this is important. Because in science fiction, then, we had this challenge of how do we express a future in which we see ourselves? The 1980s I grew up in, our community was seen as constant targets, or else it's like, you know, it's like um, Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, you know, Platoon, it's like, you know you know, Southeast Asian women are either prostitutes or they're, you know, the helpful mama songs then. It's like, you know, but men don't say anything. Either they're old men, they're helpless, or else, you know, they're the enemy and they're going to stab you in the back and you should blow them up at every opportunity. And it's like, okay, yeah, we needed to create something then where what happens if we're the heroes? What if we're the protagonists?
2: That brings up a great point. That I'm just going to throw out mm-hmm. to whoever wants to answer it. In the work that you do, And also in the work that you see your contemporaries do, how much of it is it to bring your quote unquote home here? And how much is it to correct these stereotypes that American culture has about all, you know, and all of our cultures have different stereotypes, or Americans have different stereotypes about all all of our cultures, but how much is it as this form of resistance, as this form of saying, like, no, you're going to make us out to be like this, this is actually who we are? So who wants to take that one?
5: Um, I'll start, and I want to m- modify a little bit uh, what you said. I think, for example, in the Armenian case, it's not so much part of my job or my mission isn't so much correcting the stereotypes that non-Armenians have about Armenians, but also the stereotypes Armenians have about Armenians.
2: Ooh, talk about that.
5: So there's the post-genocide victim narrative, Um that's one narrative, and then there's like ancient glory. <laughs> and there's nothing between and nothing after the genocide. And it was interesting for me, someone born in the Republic of Armenia, as my Western Armenian professor called it, with a normal childhood, right? Born in my own country, born in a country where everyone looks like me, talks like me. Yes, it was part of the Soviet Union, but I saw independence and so on. I never saw myself as a victim. Um, I never saw myself as still persecuted, still oppressed. Mm. And then to come here, I remember one day my husband said, when did you become a diasporan? And I said, when our daughter was born. And I realized I have to raise a good Armenian kid, not just a good kid or Mm. a decent kid, you know? So I think this notion that there was ancient Armenia where we had a dynastic period, where we were powerful and wonderful and the cradle of civilization, first Christian nation, literary tradition and early times and so on. And then no mention that we were in a strange geopolitical geographic area, always straddling these major empires, Greco-Roman, Parthian, Sasanian, giving and taking from both, that nuance is lost. There is this kind of pure capsule, Armenia existed by itself, no interaction with others, this kind of authentic, original, you know, Armenia. All of the kind of middle-age, early modern period is not represented when we have this amazing diasporic merchant commercial diaspora that spans from China to Europe, right, where Armenians are what historian Sepu Aslanyan would call the ideal liminal subjects connecting worlds because... They are part Eastern, part Western, because they can speak all of these languages. Because, you know, the British East India, when they're trying to start their uh, process in Bombay, it's an Armenian that connects them to the Mughal Empire. That's gone. Our kids don't learn about that. It's the Dark Ages, right? And then there's genocide. We don't have the First Independent Republic, we don't have the Russian Empire, we have a little bit of the Ottoman Empire, and then post-genocide, there's nothing. There's genocide recognition. Um, That silence too is part of the silence I'm trying to fill, that there was the Soviet Union, right? And then there's these two very distinct um, narratives, the diasporan experience and the Soviet experience, and they're kind of both longing for each other but don't know much about each other. And then independence comes, and all these kind of symbolisms, symbolic longing that has been created is shattered. And I think to some people's disappointment, right? During this Soviet 20th century period for the diaspora, the diaspora was a temporary experience because they were waiting. And then all of a sudden the Soviet Union collapsed. You have independent Armenia. Some of them went and realized this isn't home. Right? It's definitely, for many of them, not their physical home. Also, they don't find themselves. So then this realization of the permanence of diaspora, of the permanence of the hyphen. Hmm. You know, all the Middle Eastern diasporas are uprooted. So they end up in the West. So there's just all these dynamics. And I guess the big corrective I'm trying to make is that the Armenian experience has not been defined by its homogeneity but has been defined by its its plurality and multi-locality. That so often it's been the diaspora that's brought innovation. The diaspora not just of the 20th century. This endemic diaspora, right? That's such a big part of the entire Armenian experience.
0: Go ahead.
3: Can I? Okay, may I? So for us, uh, I think, I mean, you brought up so many uh, things. We're really fighting many different assumptions. So I would say that from our uh, non-South Asian communities, the assumption is that when you are, uh, I think, transferring or sharing ancient civilizations, there is no innovation. And because there's such value in the depth of the ancient traditions, and so the responsibility feels like that at times. And so, part of our responsibility really is constantly sharing the innovation that exists uh, in the diaspora, the incredible innovation at home and within each of us. And so when you're talking about creating the canon or you're creating a new art form based on your experiences and who you are, that's what we're all doing, even though we have this long and storied history and canon. But if we do not share the innovation that each of us carries with us, then why are why are we each here, right? Because that's what really, that's the story that's important.
2: And it's an innovation the, that continues that lineage. It's not something like, oh, you came to the United States and oh, wow, now all of a sudden you're quote-unquote mm-hmm. civilized. No, you're tying it back to thousands of years. You're tying it back to all of this.
3: And that's As what it, makes it complex and beautiful yeah. is mm-hmm. that, that it's that dance that is, is back that and dance. forth yeah. between the, the history and the present and, and how it all ebbs and flows together. And that is very, very important and it's and it's funny how much we have to always talk about that and we're happy to do that over and over because it is such an important
2: point. Brian, you wanted to say something.
0: Well I was just gonna say, you know, with a lot of the work that I'm doing with many of my other fellow writers in this field, then the other challenge has been, but we how do you make this transition in our case of moving from an authoritarian system into a participatory democracy, then and the um, and the question that's challenged is that, you know, the royal Lao government no longer exists and at the same time the communist system of um, the Lao people's democratic republic where people may have different opinions about that you know, can be controversial. But the question is is that for all of us, this is a, a, as we make this transition, then how do you create you know, the freedom for people to take this risk in you know, the diaspora? You know, then usually it's kind of like you're afraid oh we can't rock the boat or we'll get back sent back home to another you know, to the old country or something like that it was a constant threat that we always heard then and so, I can, so for me it was kind of like well you know I've been here for, you know, longer than pretty much well, most everyone here it's like you know and I've got my citizenship here so I guess I have my responsibility you know, then to model then okay look I can say things now and you can also say things that um, kind of challenged, right? you know, to ask kind of those questions that will almost be unthinkable back in the old days. Like, okay, well, what if you had some of these Buddhist monks weren't as good as they were supposed to be? What if, um, you know... Here is the side that we fought on on the one hand here, but, you know, it's like, well, that one particular general up north here was um, kind of also trafficking in drugs, too. It's like, you know, so, uh, you know, like, um, how do you bring those conversations forward? I and mean, that was actually kind of the issue in science fiction that it became necessary. Like, I couldn't get our community necessarily to talk about, well, what did you do to survive in the refugee camps? That became awkward. All right, well, then fine. Here's a zombie apocalypse scenario. Mm. Oh, yeah, well, you know, that was just like... <laughs> it's like, wow. oh, okay, it's bad. What happened?
5: Can I add something yeah. here? Um, because I'm just... From everyone's responses, I think another interesting trend is when you are pushed into the diaspora, I think it's natural to want to preserve. Mm. Um, but what and you preserve what? Tradition, right? We say this, we're preserving tradition. As if tradition is this static, unchanged, boxed thing. But tradition is what? Tradition is a set of behaviors, practices, actions, worldviews that were contemporary at any given point in time, right? Mm -hmm. And that are constantly evolving. So I I do this with language, but you know, when I talk to my colleagues in dance and music and the arts, this is an issue of viewing something, or when you label something traditional, there is this unnecessary association with like backward or old, or the equation of the traditional and the old with, uh, you know, of the olden days. And I think, again, I make this argument about language. The moment you publish a textbook in Armenian, it's already outdated mm. because the language has evolved. Right? And, you know, you see these diasporans, we were talking about this earlier, these Armenians who've come from Armenia, let's say, in the 90s, and they're still living in that bubble of the, the Armenia in the 90s, and Armenia has moved on, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I think we just have to be careful about how we unpack tradition, and, um, and let's not do it an injustice by treating it as something static because it's so dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I think that the kind of diasporic cultivation, I, again, in the kind of green room interview, they asked me about preserving, and I said, could we maybe not use preserve and use cultivate?
2: Oh, that's cool. Running.
5: Yeah, I think that's 100%. That's exactly what
4: Aparna and my, the questions that we are always asked is, oh, well, you do Indian classical dance, it's traditional. We are only present contemporary. And we have to constantly keep talking about it because Mm -hmm. an art form grows with a practitioner. And it has done that for 2,000 years. Each of us write our own poetry. Each of Mm -hmm. us write our own book. There is a language. And it's so difficult when you say this is an art form that has a, Two thousand-year-old background. Mm-hmm. Right away, people think you're doing the same thing. It, even after having performed, be, being commissioned by the Kennedy Center, we still have to say mm-hmm. that you know this is our work. None of this existed. The language was there. So it's a continuous process of um, educating everybody about that, that we are contemporary. Yeah. We are not just in you know, doing an old form.
2: Yeah. And yeah, home changes. The, I mean, all of us are proof, our families, that home changes, the idea of home changes and all that. So right now, folks at home and here, if you have questions where you have some, text them, put them on YouTube. I'm going to read some quick diaspora stories from our readers. Uh, Alana says, I am Chamoru, Pacific Islander from Guam, a territory of the United States. So people born on Guam are US citizens. I was born and raised in Guam and my family are are all from Guam, my Mexican Cousin, married a Chamora, awesome people. Uh, let's see. Sarah says, I'm not even sure what countries my family is from due to shifting Eastern European borders and some, some unreliable narrators. We all have those unreliable narrators, of course. Gayan says, I'm Mexican-American-Armenian, and I know that in Mexico my family is from Alexa, Jalisco, partially from Arancho, Kale, El Cuis and in Armenian, all I know is that my family is from Yerevan. Um, so that's keep sharing those. Que- please, I'm always just. I think it's important to tell your stories. Period. And so let's get to the questions. Let's go. Of course, the children question. If you have children, what are their feelings about cultural homeland? How are they similar or different than yours? Let's start with the mother daughter here. Grandma, mother daughter. <laughs> well,
4: you you should. Talk you have to, to talk, talk too. Right here. Mm. Well, I'm just saying. Like for me. We are two. My two kids are both in the performing arts. They helped me run the company. And the one good, one strong thing that I had was I was able to go back to India every year with my children. So they, that bond of continuing the, the children watching the grandparents, the culture, the art, the dance. It brought us together close, and to keep the culture going. Then to say, oh, I'm going to do something else other than what my parents' grandparents did.
3: I I would say, though, that my sister and I came to it very differently. And I was very um, uh, involved in the cultural elements, and I, I I would always describe myself as Indian, and my sister would describe herself as American.
2: Interesting.
3: And she was born in the United States, and she... Uh, wasn't as serious about dancing when she was younger. She did everything from tap to piano, to tried everything, and I never did any of those things. And now we're all in the same place. But um, we, so we took very different paths. Um, I have two children. I have 12-year-old twins, and they are half Indian, half South Asian, I should say. And um, they are very comfortable with uh, the Indian side of our family, they spend time with my... You know, this morning, for. they take Indian food for lunch most often, and they said, I don't want mola hapuri for lunch with my dosha. It's just spice. I don't taste all the subtlety. <laughs> but they're just like, you know, kids who wear hoodies and, you know, sweatpants and whatever. So I don't think they think about it that much, but they're also not in... It's, it's, it's a little difficult, I think, to raise children as a bicultural in some ways when I am so involved in what I'm doing and trying to be conscious. I, it's like, I don't want to put that on them.
2: It is hard. I mean, and American letters has, you know, novels and movies about people losing their heritage. It's almost like it's inevitable. That's why I always laugh, you know, stock, talking specific about Mexican identity, where they're, you know, where you had certain people saying, oh, you know, Mexicans are going to take over the American Southwest, none of them assimilate. And I think to myself, like, my first language was Spanish. By the time I was seven years old, I almost spoke exclusively English. And I always loved the name game. So, like, my great-grandfather was named Sabas, which is, like, a Lebanese saint. My grandfather was named uh, Placido, a little bit more, like, just still, like, old-school Mexican name. My dad's name's Lorenzo, which is still kind of Mexican. Gustavo is, you know, kind of Mexican. And then my nephew, his name is Brian. Like... (laughs) How much more do you want to see assimilation? It is happening all the time. It's inevitable. In a sense, all of us, I mean, are we all fighting a losing battle? Our children, our nephews, is it inevitable that they're going to become quote-unquote Americanized and they're going to lose those connections? Uh, Shujan, go for it.
5: Um, Okay, so I'll start with me and then I'll move on to my kids. I was very unaware of my identity being born and raised in Armenia. Really, again, until I got married and faced this notion of becoming a mother. Um, And because of what I was doing, because of my academic work in heritage languages and bilingualism, I decided, this was very intentional, that all my investment would be in language and through language, that I could choose and impose several things on my kids, their name and the language. And I did that, I imposed Armenian names and it was very important for me, no middle name, Armenian name that could be pronounced and wouldn't be forced to be changed. So, phonetically, it had to be pronounced. Interesting. So, and that was it. We didn't have conversations about, you are Armenian, you must be Armenian, you must marry Armenian. But what's really interesting is now my 14-year-old is in an Armenian folk ensemble. singing and dancing and cultivating armenian art my six-year-old a week ago we're driving in the car and we're listening to the radio it's like 89.3 and they're doing a promo kind of call for stories on it's called race in america and then the tagline goes what does it mean to be american share your story whether you're first generation second generation third fourth generation and, you know, they're, they're kind of extending an invitation for people to submit. I don't even have a notion that my six-year-old is listening. And she goes, well, Mom, this doesn't apply to us. We don't have to submit anything because we're not American.
2: Mm.
5: I said, what do you mean, Olive John? <laughs> she said, well, I'm not American. I'm Armenian. And I said, well, how do you figure that? <laughs> right? I said, Well, you were born in America. She says, but, Mom, I speak Armenian. And she thought about it. And she said, if I didn't speak Armenian, it would be a different story. Then she paused, and she said, everyone I know is from Armenia. You, papa, grandma, grandpa, aunties, uncles, whatever. Then she thought about it some more. She said, and I've been to Armenia a couple of times, and I'm planning on going. <laughs> so, so it, it, you know, in my mind, I kept thinking, oh, I can't wait for the moment when she realizes she's American. <laughs> you know, the more. So, it just it's interesting seeing that through your kid's lens. Uh, what was so non-visible for me and then hyper-visible and then I tried not to make it as visible but then of course I just talked about imposing name and language mm-hmm. and given what I do I don't think they can escape it you know here she is watching me talk so <laughs> I just I don't know it's a very interesting process watching your kids process identity and watching them discover the hyphen because I'm i so hyper-Armenian here and then I go to Armenia <laughs> And the first day or two is amazing. Everybody speaks Armenian, because here I'm always searching for the Armenian, you know? Um, Everybody looks like you, talks like you, and then all of a sudden I realize I smile too much. I'm too nice, I'm too polite. I miss the diversity of LA. I miss the cuisines, the Mexican food in Armenia doesn't taste like Mexican food here, the Chinese food, none of it. And then I can't wait to come back, right? So uh, the the kind of trials and tribulations there, really
0: interesting to experience. Oh, Ryan. Um, yeah, going when I was first coming back into the community, the um, whole challenge was I often ran into children who were just going like, why are you fighting so hard to come back into a culture that we're trying to get out of here, which is where we were at. And I think back to, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to share with you a poem from my when I first ran into um, my, my new family after 30 years here that's in this book called One among Romans, which would hopefully explain a little bit of my take on it. She warned me sternly to remember, after all these years, I'm coming back to a Lao house, Lao family, Lao customs, upon the agrarian outskirts of Modesto. You have to eat the Lao food they serve you. No complaining, even if you didn't grow up with it. Besides, it will be delicious. My nieces and nephews welcome us in, taking our shoes off by the door, smiles, and sub-IDs. Shown to the table, we're informed everybody's ready for Easter and Lao New Year. It's Taco Wednesday tonight, with nachos and hot dogs, spaghetti and papaya salad, some brisket and gel. I eat politely, as home here as anywhere, with a smile. But ah... Oh. My wife at the time was so angry well, because she had her whole heart set on, like, you know, oh, we're going to eat like, we love Lao food. Yeah, it's like. Okay. well, you know, you've got about a quarter of what we were traditionally called, it, but, you know, the tacos, berea. It's like, yeah, taco berea is awesome. It's like, you know, I, 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 I picked out. <laughs>
2: Nachos and papaya salad, that is an awesome combination. Uh, really bring in the spice. <laughs> <laughs> One final question for everyone, and folks, remember, stay around afterwards, talk to us, share with us your stories, but I'll just go to the original question that Sokolo had to publish all, or to promote all of this. How do homelands cross borders then? How do you transmit your idea of home to where you're at and where you quote unquote came from? Everyone has to answer it, short.
3: So uh, for me, the way I do it is, is, or at least the way I feel I'm doing it is because I'm always surrounded by family and we are immersed in the art form. And so it is dynamic and rich, and always in conversation with who we are, where we are, what we're doing, and so wherever we move, wherever we are at the minute, at that time, our homeland is with us, and it can mean something a little bit different each time. But it's the the people, and and that art, and I just wanted to say that our tradition, our artistic traditions, are passed down through an oral tradition. We don't have it. We don't have textbooks that become. Uh, out of date. And so that to me is a perfect metaphor for the way that we live, is it lives within us.
4: Uh, For me, food, everybody that I know, I have fed so many people in India. That's my entry point into my culture and that has made me a wonderful cook and I love to share that and that, through that, I show them my home.
5: That's amazing. I think in the Armenian experience, we're used to homelands not necessarily being physical. In the absence of political autonomy, in the presence of constant diasporic status, we're used to symbolic homelands, we're used to church being a homeland, we're used to language being a homeland. I mean, we are obsessed with our language, folks. We worship our language. The guy who invented our alphabet has saint status in our church. We have posters of our alphabet on our walls, not to teach our kids, but just to admire it, right? We tattoo our language on our bodies. So, obviously, the language person is going to say language, but um, I was talking to Natalie Kamajan, a colleague of mine who's sitting here, who's the dance director of an Armenian folk ensemble, and I remembered that this fellow named Tom Bozikian, and I just want to share his bio really quickly, so... You can get a sense of how homelands cross borders in the Armenian context. Tom Bozikian is in his 80s. One side of his family is from the Russian Empire. The other side of his family is from the Ottoman Empire. They come to the US in the 1940s. He's born in LA. He grows up in Fresno. uh, Gets a bachelor's and master's in Russian studies. Uh, Also is fascinated with dance, right? Especially the pre-genocide, pre-1915 kind of folk Armenian dancing. In the 1970s, this diasporan Armenian is invited by the Soviet authorities to go to Armenia to study the definitive Armenian dance, which is what, as Natali talks about in her work, this balleticized, Eurocentric, homogenized, Soviet-visionized, definitive, stage-worthy Armenian dance. So he studies this, he studies choreography. Then he comes back to Fresno, continues doing his folk stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then right around the independence movement in Armenia, there is now this rejection of the Soviet, this kind of revitalization, rebirth of the folk. And this fellow appears, Gagi Ginosian, physicist by profession, who's trying to jumpstart this movement goes from Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, to Fresno, to Tom Bozikian, to collect the original, the pure, the authentic Armenian dances. And along with the ones that Tom has collected, he sends over something called the Michigan Hop. (laughs) Right? This is an Armenian folk dance created by Armenians from Michigan that now has come to Fresno, that now is going back to Yerevan. That's how homelands cross borders. Mm-hmm. they cross borders with people, with culture, with art, with give and take. Mm-hmm.
2: finally Brian
0: wow that's like that, that's a lot to work with, and it resonates so much with what we're trying to do as well. I think you know when we put together you know the first few Lao American Writers Summits and you know, a number of other events then I often ran into a lot of our community members where they were. You know, I'm just you know, pulling me aside, and you know they're looking up to me as like, wow, you're the most widely published Lao poet here. But and I'm really happy to be here in this, event, in this space with you. But I got to tell you, I don't always really feel very Lao myself. Here. And i oh, take a look around you in this room, and I'm going to tell you right now the simple fact of the matter is, is none of us ever feels absolutely like that, that that is what has come to define our cultural identity. Mm. And that in the process of that colonialism, the imperialism, watching our history eradicated, manipulated, um, you know, in the course of a secret war. Literally, it's a secret war. It's like, you know, all the records of who we were were deliberately you know, destroyed. It's like, yeah. So if you don't have a false sense of who you are and you're in the process of trying to rebuild something with us when you just have to accept it that, you know, um, you know to borrow from, you know, obviously it's a misquote of I and then, but, you know, whenever two of us meet in the same space together, we're at least going to try yeah, you know, to build something now, and it's like you know, it's like yeah, it's just you know, two crazy people all in the room here, going off off at each other. Yeah, well, that is still the culture that we're building it here. It's like, is it going to last for centuries or years? Who knows? But that's the journey we love to take with one another.
5: It's and definitely it's, not going to be the same. Oh yeah, it's never never. Going to be the same.
2: It's never the same. But by mm. virtue of us being humans, mm. home is never going to be the same. Culture is never going to be the same. Incredible conversation, but we have to wrap up. Thank you to everyone in our live audience for tuning in tonight. You'll be able to find a summary of our talk at SocaloPublicSquare.com by tomorrow, plus interviews with our panelists and the other events in the series. Please do subscribe to Socalo's newsletter and podcast. Yes, this is a podcast for more great conversations and follow Socalo on all social media Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. Is there a TikTok yet? Not yet. You got to get there. Everyone, please stay for our reception. We're going to have food, we're going to have drinks conversation just follow us and then and share your stories of diaspora please online and all that and thank you once again Aparna and Rani Shushan and Brian for the conversation tonight one final time a round of applause for our guests thank you
5: all
1: good night